Hello, this is Melissa, and it's Real History on Thursday, the 27th of April, 2023. And today I'm joined in conversation by Adam from Germany, and just wanted to let you know, we've been talking before I hit the record button for a few minutes, and I'm very impressed with the sharpness of his mind and his the clarity of his thoughts. Adam just had major surgery on his spine about 10 days ago, and he just got home from the hospital, I think day before yesterday. So I will let Adam join now, and he can talk about that for a minute if he'd like to. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Hey, Melissa. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, so... We, were, we, we had actually wanted to do this a little while ago, a few weeks ago, but as Melissa said, I had uh, surgery, yeah, um, on my, my lower spine that was really, yeah, overdue, to be honest. Um, I had suffered, a, suffered a, an injury weightlifting a few years ago. Uh, it was actually the beginning of 2020, right as the lockdowns were starting. I had busted my back out pretty bad, slipped a disc, really not good, and I wasn't really able to get the kind of care that I I might have or should have gotten at that time because of the situation. And so I just kind of grew, <laughs> I, I worked my way back out of it with, with training again and just continued going and yeah, it got, it got better for some time. Um, but then, uh, yeah, it was a bit too much punishment and I ended up uh, with pretty severe regular pain and had to go back into the hospital and, and get a spinal decompression done. I'm supposed to be a, a quick kind of in and out. Maybe, maybe I'm there for a couple of days, but um, the first operation basically failed, and it got worse. And so I actually had to go back in for a second operation. So I was in the hospital for a total of about ten days, during which time I was not in good shape at all. And I, at least a couple of points in there, it. It seemed to me, or at least it felt to me, at a few points, like 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 death was an op- a, a possibility. Mm. If not, there'd been very very serious, very serious injury or, or, or health problems. It, it was really bad for. It was a couple of moments in there, but um, I seem to have gotten out of it pretty well, and I'm I'm, I'm back home healing now. But that was a very um, the time spent was 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 good in a way because I was able to reflect on a lot and and process a lot of things and think about a lot of things and yeah I guess I'm still making sense of it all but I I'm grateful for the experience yeah in a weird kind of way well I understand that I mean that the facing mortality if it's the death of someone that you really love or and are close to or it's having a a near-death experience or a very serious illness or trauma, it does tend to hopefully cause you to reflect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I've been at that point in my life in general, because I'm 39 now, you see, so I'll be, I'll be turning 40 at the beginning of next year. And I, Yeah, I mean, people people always talk about the midlife crisis, and i I, I got to be honest, I've, I've, death and mortality have been at the forefront of my thoughts for yeah, about six months now. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 kind of weird, but it seems there seems to be something to it. But that's not a bad thing. That's a, a natural thing, I would say. 
it's maturing. So, yeah, it is. I, I, I think that too often people just float through life and they don't gain any wisdom or insight. They don't reflect and it's laid on for us, you know, in scientific socialism, everything from birth to death is, is really laid on and we're entertained and you reach a certain point and then you're off on world cruises or, you know, whatever your budget allows or whatever your budget allows. I had to say that again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, if you're aware of the agenda, you are in a good place already because it inclines you towards thinking of how things really are and not how you're told to play your life away. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to share about the reflection or do you want to dive into another topic? Um, I'm still processing it. So, you know, I, I think I'd probably be able to talk more about it given some more time. I think the main thing for me at the moment, though, which was, it's, I guess it's a little tacky, but it was, um, I, I really, really valued what the nurses were able to do in that place. Really? I really, I saw a lot of respect. I, 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 I gained a lot of respect for them, um, because in the last few years with, with the COVID thing and there's all of these awful vaccine mandates and all the division, and the, the sort of the, the going along to get along and the whole, all of these medical professionals and institutions pushing this stuff, it's caused a lot of us to, to, to really lose a lot of faith in people, you know, especially the medical institutions. And because we know they've been, we- we know they've been weaponized for so long, uh, anyway. And so you sort of think about nurses and you think about, well, they're the ones that were kind of doing these, dancing videos on TikTok when there's supposed to be like a world-ending pandemic in place, you know. And so there's, I guess, there's kind of some resentment there. But being a patient in a hospital where this was my first operation, I've never been operated on before, never been under general anesthetic, didn't know what to expect, didn't know how it was going to go. It's all new, totally new. And as I said, you know, I ended up sort of having one surgery and things going downhill after that and ending up in a pretty bad spot, uh, not feeling good at all feeling very, very, very vulnerable and wondering if, like, am I going to make it out of this, you know? Because I, I really don't know. This is new territory, you know? And it's um, it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the nurses made the difference. They, they you know, they were, they were like angels in that wow. time. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. I have yeah. witnessed, I have witnessed very different interactions with nurses you know mm-hmm. unfortunately when alan was in the hospital in 2016 it the the sense that i had about the nurses and it wasn't that they did anything wrong but it was so regimented they came in literally like flying robots and every, oh, yeah, everything that they did was timed down to the second, and there was no time for any kind of personal or human interaction. And right, okay. Yeah, there there was one older nurse I recall. There was a moment somehow where I got her to talk about 
herself for just a moment before she fled the room. And, huh. it, you know, it, 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 she was struggling and trying to make ends meet and things were kind of hard. But it was a moment when you could see that there was a human Mm-hmm. There, right, right. Um, gotcha. but the, yeah. the rest of it was so. It was like time and motion studies. You know, efficiency in, out, do everything, change it. You know, boom, boom, out. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. nice to hear that an- that nursing angels. You know, the the kind of Florence Nightingale model still yeah. is out there. You, you. It's funny because Germany is very much like that in a lot of other ways, and I'm sure that there are plenty of other hospitals where the nurses are just in and out, you know, and mm-hmm. I, 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 probably the younger ones are probably more like that, you know, given the, the train will be updated to, into the new kind of socialist, the patient is the enemy kind of culture, you know. <laughs> but uh, what I noticed at this hospital was that the, the surgeons themselves were like royalty. You know, you, you barely had any contact with them at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you had the first consultation. They're the ones, they, they, they write up the plan. They tell you what they're going to do, blah, blah, blah. But then you don't, you don't see them again until after the operation. And then that's very brief. They do a quick courtesy flyby, like, yep, it all went great, very well, bye. You know, mm-hmm. this is the person that's cut you open, you know, and the nurses are the ones who make up the difference. They, mm-hmm. they, 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 they give you the human side of things and they, they actually, look after you and try and make you feel safe and uh, comfortable no matter what's happening, you know? And oh, that's good. There was some, yes, yeah, it was. And there was, um, yeah, they, they all had their own way and they all had their own strengths or, or weaknesses. And, but, but they all wanted to do the best they could, you know? Some of them were real characters, you know, one of them was, was, was a very sort of, how can I say, a boisterous woman, the mother of two teenage boys. So, you know, she's, she's tough already. You know? <laughs> this is no nonsense. You know what I mean? So she's coming in at seven o'clock and putting the lights on and clapping, you know, going, come on, come on. <laughs> no sympathy, but also that was just her way, you know, mm-hmm. and she was very sympathetic. She was very warm and kind and she did everything she could to help, but she was always cracking a joke. You know, mm-hmm. everything was a joke, you know, and, and, in times like that, that's, that can really make the difference, you know. Mm-hmm. So, good. you know, yeah, it was, that was great. Yeah. How, how long have you lived in Germany? Oh, uh, six years now. You know, just over six years. I got here in March of 2017. So, yeah. Okay. How, how is your German? Oh, possible. I mean, I can, I can, I, I know speak enough to get by uh, at work or, or, or in daily life. But uh, once you get into, I guess, some of the more nuanced or technical language, or especially political language, it's, um, it gets much more difficult. So I know the I know the basics and I know the technical language, the things that I need to do. So in my my job, working as a as a, as a sort of a carpenter slash joiner, I know enough German about that that industry, you know, that I need. Mm-hmm. But if, if I, if I read a, a, a form from a government agency and it's got what they call Amtsprache, which is like bureaucratic legalese basically is what, what it means. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like different language basically. It's, it's even Germans don't understand it. I mean, I've, I, I remember getting like letters from various government agencies years ago. And at the time I was, I was seeing this girl who was a lawyer. She was actually a lawyer for the German government. And she was looking through these letters sent by government agencies and she couldn't make sense of them either. Mm-hmm. And this is what she, stu- this is what she studied. She had a law degree and all this, this stuff, you know, 
So it's it's pretty crazy. It's there's 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 many levels of language, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mine is mine is very basic, but it's enough to to get by, and I'm always improving as well. The German the German um, vocabulary is not actually that difficult. I'd say it's they probably on the on the whole have less words than English, um, but the the, the 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 grammar is extremely complex and difficult uh-huh. to master, and it doesn't really have its own sense of logic that you can apply. A lot of it you just have to memorize, and it is that way because it is that way, and that makes it harder to learn. So, yeah. I read something um, years ago that Theo Adorno wrote about, mm. about English. He was criticizing the English language, and he said, German, there are very specific words and terms that you don't have in English, and, and German yeah. is a very, we don't think about it to the Western ear or the, the romantic languages or the English language. We don't think of German as a lyrical or melodic no. language at all, but Adorno said it's very, very expressive, and I I have read some Adorno in English, and he literally will have a sentence, one sentence that I think can go on for about a page. Yeah. It's very com- complicated, and yet it does make sense if you follow it start to finish. But Mark Twain has written several things about the, the humorist, the American humorist. He he wrote something. I just looked it up just now while we were talking, um, the awful German language, and he just breaks it down point by point. But I remember years ago reading something that Twain had written on German, and he said, I started to read a sentence in German, and two weeks later I finished. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's it. Um, it's both. It can be both things. Um, it's descriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Romantic language, the Latin languages, English in particular, is, is expressive. It's emotion. It's um, we don't worry so much about the exact grammar and the exact correct word. We 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 go with what feels right at the time. To mm-hmm. do with context and everything's to do with culture. We have co- context and culture are very important parts of the English language. Whereas in German, at least from what I understand and know of it, it's it's far it's, it's far more um, structured and logical, and it's very very specific. And yeah, Adorno is right in, in that sense. It is there are, there are German there are words in German which, as a non-German native speaker, I can't understand because I don't have the linguistic concepts in my mind to understand it. Because mm-hmm. my my linguistic centers have been built through the English language, which is not not quite so specific, you know, and gen- generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So there's no English translation, any no 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 sufficient English translation, and even then, it's it's only really it's only really uh, approximate, you know, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. an approximate translation for for a concept that we cannot uh, express in English because we do not have the words. Mm-hmm. They have one word for a very specific thing, and it's a linguistic concept that if you don't know it, if you didn't grow up with it, you can't really fully understand it. So there's a lot yeah. of that, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know German, but when I was a young woman, my best friend for a number of years was from Germany. And... Once she had a, a friend of hers, a, another German woman, come over to visit, and I had them over, and I, I think I made some coffee and muffins and that kind of thing. And the young German woman, who hardly spoke any English, 
was very pleasant, and she said as she was leaving, she said, you're gemütli, 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 kite. Gemütli, gemütli, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I okay. said, well, what, what is that? And, and she said, yeah. well, you know, there's really no way to say it in e English. It's, it's hospitable. Kind of cozy, but yeah. yeah, yeah, cozy, warm, cozy. cozy. Is the best one, I think, yeah. <laughs> they have the same said, thing in Denmark. Yeah. yeah. They have a hooker in Denmark. H-Y-G-E, hugge, uh, it's called, and it means it's basically the Danish version of cozy, but also it's completely not cozy. It's a totally different concept, which mm -hmm. nobody else understands because they're not Danish, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. The, the, you know, another one that I I remember learning years ago, but I just, it's uh, it's amazing, really, and that's the word schadenfreude, schadenfreude. Schaden, schadenfreude. Yeah. Schadenfreude. It's, Freud, yeah. yeah, delight yeah. in other people's suffering. Yeah, well, Freude is, is happiness and um, Schaden is harm. Ah. So that's how that one works, yeah. So okay. harm, happiness is what it means, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So we don't, we don't have concepts like that particularly. Or, yeah, or exactly. we, you know, we can say it in English. It just takes a, a lot longer to convey that. Yeah, and even then, the again, it's we, we are conceptualizing with different linguistic uh, concepts within our own minds. So it's, mm -hmm. it's still not exactly as the German would understand it, you know, so, yeah. So you are, uh, I, 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 some listeners will have heard you did about 10 minutes on your, how you found Alan and what his work meant to you. But in that, you talked about coming from New Zealand and being raised in New Zealand. And I thought you might, we, we talked last month before you had the surgery about your childhood and some of the experiences that you had and things that you were exposed to there. I didn't know if you wanted to jump into any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we did talk about the school of philosophy and we thought yes. that might be, it might be something good to talk about. So, um, yeah, where to start with that one? That's, yeah. I mean, so that, that's something that my father got involved in when I was around the time that I was born, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that would have been 1984. Yeah, so it was around the time that my, my parents got married and I was born. My father got involved with this. And my father has, he has an above average IQ. And so he was searching for, he was looking at Mensa. He joined Mensa for a while and he didn't, he didn't like it though. He said they weren't the right kind of people and so they were there for the wrong reasons or what have you. But, through, I think he, he told me he looked at the Rosicrucians as well. So I don't know how much he got, how far he got involved there. I don't know if he ever was invited to masonry. I think my grandfather, his father might have been a mason. Although that's all not talked about, of course. It's all very hush hush. So I don't know. But anyway, through his searching, his searching as a young man, he came into the, the school of philosophy in Auckland, New Zealand. And, um, yeah, um, the School of Philosophy is a, a worldwide uh, philosophical society, I guess you could call it, in the broadest possible terms. It started out in London, to, and was, I think, more to do with, what do they call it, what do they call it again, was it applied economics, mm -hmm. or, or something, something like that. It was kind of a practical thing to do with the economics of, of behavior, of philosophy, of thought, that part of it's not clear to me because despite having been involved in this, I never really did any real research on it. Kind of weird, I know, and I, I don't know why that is, but I, I just didn't. 
Well, it might have been too close to home. Well, when you mentioned it, when you mentioned it to me, I did actually look into it a little bit, and Mm. so the the applied economics was the focal point of it, and I believe that the founder was Leon McLaren. That's right. Yeah. Correct. And he mm-hmm. was British nobility, or or he may not have been nobility. I think he was, though, but it, this appealed to the British yeah. nobility. Absolutely. And they yeah. had these weekend events and classes. Mm-hmm. It was very close-knit. And I think in the founding, there was quite a bit of Greek and Hellenic, um, ancient Eastern philosophy as well. But it, it, yeah. was, it was more... It was more an applied economic idea, and then when the father passed away, the son inherited the school, and the son, and I, I believe in, this was in the 1950s that the son took over, and he was introduced to the work of Ospinsky and Gurdjieff, so then it got into mysticism, and he spent several years exploring and researching and feeling that there was something missing in what they were sharing with people. And he was introduced to the work of the, this, I think in the late 50s, to the work of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And that's, mm-hmm. that's Transcendental Meditation and the Beatles. And from there, the school took a completely different turn into Ad- Advaita, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Advaita philosophy, which is, it's Hinduism. Yeah, yeah. So by the time, yes, by the time your father became exposed to this in the 80s, it was very, and what I I said to you earlier was that there might have been a slight intellectual dishonesty in the way that this was conveyed to people who got involved because they have a very, just the brief little bit of research that I've done on it, they have a very clever way of presenting this as a mm-hmm. broad spectrum of different kinds of philosophy. But what you are getting is a slow, careful oh, yeah. directing you into into basic Hinduism. You you get taken through a process. There are um, the way that you're right. The way that it is advertised on the websites and. Um, you know, through the, all the promotional stuff and the open days and all that stuff, is it's 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 very broad and it's just hey, come along and and we can talk about anything. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's sort of like an open forum for for um, debate and discussion, and philosophy and the yes, there are some courses, but it's all very informal and it's it's all very cool and open. And I can tell you that it, it's not like that at all. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all when I was coming up with it. So my experience of it as a child was that I started going to Sunday school uh, sessions uh, from uh, yeah from school age, so five five years old I guess, mm-hmm. um, or maybe six. Yeah, that was my only real invol- involvement at that at that very young age. You had to wear a shirt and tie um, on a Sunday morning. There would be rituals, all kinds of rituals. You'd have a fir- you'd first come in and have a sort of a meeting with everybody, and the senior men would sit up the front and they'd have something to say or something to talk about. They would do a little pause and they would uh, utter a little bit of Sanskrit in, in the pause and the, the, the mini meditation rituals, basically, where you do a quick sort of thirty second pause and, and a little uh, voc- verbal ritual. These things were were regular. Then the groups would break off. Uh, into yeah, sort of gender and age, basically. 
you know, so you have sort of three or four different age groups for the boys, and then same thing with the girls. Then the adults would do various bits and pieces. Maybe they might they might lead or be in charge of one of the the children's groups, or they might be doing something else. Maybe maintaining the property, for example, something like that. And so that's what I was doing from. I guess from the yeah from the age of, of, of five to ten thereabouts maybe a little bit younger, but then we also did we also went on weekend weekends away went camping a lot went snowboarding that stuff was really cool those were good memories to be honest about that we had a lot of fun and there were some good friends you know, but the culture itself for the most part especially during the formal the formal sessions so this is the Sunday mornings and and we also did the these, they call them residentials, where they would, um, everybody would go and stay at basically a huge mansion during the weekend. And the weekend would be full of philosophical classes, uh, at, diff- at various different levels, mixed in with some, some sports sessions where, you know, people could, could do exercise and play sports, some, a bit of social free time, that kind of thing. But it was all very, very planned and regimented. Highly, highly regimented and controlled. And yeah, as I said, very, very aristocratic culture. Very British nobility culture, you could say, Victorian, Edwardian, whatever you might want to call it. And the, the, the men and the women were were segregated. There were certain social events where the men and the women would come together um, for meals, but the men were you know, typically doing one type of philosophical course or, or discussion or what have you, and the women would be doing something else. The women were trained to be to be homemakers, I think, essentially. They would do all the the cooking and the housework and, and all that kind of stuff, the, and the men would, yeah, be left to the, <laughs> the cigars and the brandy, I guess. It's an interesting but, yeah. thing too, because what you can, what you see here, because it was appealing to upper middle class and to the nobility, is that you've got something that is what you might look at through one lens as New Age, Hinduism, Indian philosophy that was being promoted simultaneously to the love, peace, hippie, dippy crowd. Yeah. But you have the same thing being packaged for a completely different class exactly, of people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I saw that contradiction since uh, from day one. From right from from as early as my, my earliest memories of the school of philosophy, as I saw a major major contradiction there, I couldn't necessarily have explained it to you at the time. Obviously, being so young, but I saw it and I felt it, and I I I, I felt like these these two things don't work together, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or something like that. So, yeah. so yeah. you've got it being packaged as free love and and flower power. And then you have to a class that really wants to keep the distinction between men and women that would be a more conservative class, then it's marketed to them exactly that way. It's marketed to them exactly that way. And I realize now, looking back, why that was done. I didn't quite get it for a long time. You know, as you said, perhaps this was a little too close to home. Um, but I look back now, and I, I, especially sometimes when I'm in conversation with my father, who's still a member, is the intention we want to talk about a purpose of a group like this is fairly simple and that's just simply to push new age positivism mm-hmm. it's sim- simply to get people to only look at the positive as Alan mm-hmm. would always say you know what I mean Alan would always go on this uh, this point over and over again about the new age 
He's absolutely right about it. It's all about being, yeah, getting into, um, what am I trying to say here? You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Tuning out. Mm-hmm. Tuning out the negativity and, and, and only focusing on the positive, you know? I remember, I had one experience when I was a kid. We were in one of these Sunday morning classes and somebody across the street on the other side of the road fell out of a window. So they fell out of a second or third story window onto the ground. Now, I didn't see the fall myself, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, that person, if, if they weren't dead, they were seriously injured and needed an ambulance immediately. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And all of, all of us kids jumped up, you know, and ran to the window. Because, you know, somebody, somebody saw it and shouted out and we all jumped up and ran up to the window. And the guy who was leading the class came in and he shut the window and he shut the curtains and he shut all the windows and the curtains and he just told us all to go back and sit down. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. It's it's it, that that was so wrong on so many levels to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, being a parent, I I can kind of sympathise with it because when you're in, you know when you're in charge of a bunch of kids and you've got that responsibility, then you can easily you know you, you the, the the guy at the time might have thought to himself, look, look. That person's going to get dealt with. There's plenty of cars passing on the road. Somebody will see it. Somebody will, you know, some, it'll be dealt with, basically. And I, I can almost understand that, but that's not the damn point. You know? mm-hmm. And, and um, we yeah. don't know. See, this is one of those Milgram experiment kinds of things. You know, we, we don't actually know if someone else was going to deal with it or not. They've done all kinds exactly. of they've done all kinds of studies in big cities like New York City and so forth where someone is screaming for help on the sidewalk. I mean, these aren't just studies, they're observations of real life events and no one calls the police. No one goes down to help the person who's screaming in distress because everyone's thought is someone else will deal with this. You could see from the point of view that maybe he's shielding the children from an unpleasant yeah, exactly. Yeah. Visual, and yet they had already seen it, so it needs to be de- uh, addressed at that point. Exactly, and there's something to be said, I would say, about okay. So, so, so maybe, maybe you're going to expose the children to something traumatic, right? And mm-hmm. maybe that's going to have an impact on them. But you've also allowed them to have a genuine experience of of life, of of reality, of you know, it's like, okay, so we suffered, but we did the right thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and maybe we all value life a bit more because of that. Or, or maybe, yeah, do, do, do you know what I'm saying there? It's kind of like, I, I, I get the sort of a wanting to avoid trauma, but also you, sometimes allowing people to, to be exposed to things can, can help, can help them grow in other ways as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The, but, uh, yeah. Day before yesterday, I got an email from someone, and they were—I think they were someone who who had questioned a little bit of like, why are you on about the new age? Why was Alan on about the new age? I don't really see it. But he had been listening to—I I won't say the name of the show, but it was one that probably veered in that direction, and that sent him off to listen to something else. And he said, "You were right." He said, "They started talking about how." It was all just a balance of dark 
and light. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And that people weren't sophisticated enough if they were still in the fighting the dark side paradigm. Literally saying that people fighting against or opposing the controller class were basically the same as them because they were fighting for what they thought was the right side. And then I guess the host of that show went on to say that, you know, basically it's just like in nature, you've got sharks and fish. And I thought, well, very, there, yeah. there you go. <laughs> very, 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 very clever. Very, uh-huh. very clever way of putting it. You know, that's, yeah. And that's, that's, that's really attractive to a lot of people in that way because it mm-hmm. takes the responsibility off your shoulders, you know. That's right. And this is, this is, this is the, your basic, this is your basic new age Kabbalism, really, which has infiltrated its way and metastasized its way into all religions and all philosophies. And it's funny, the more we talk about the school of philosophy, the more I see that that has been the case there as well. Because we talk, you know, the, 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 the memory I just recounted there, you know, right. there's another, right. what is that? It's exactly that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, there's, there is no, yeah, it's like there's no, there is no real good or bad in the world. There's only our opinion of it. And, um, yeah, we can, we can create our own experience through through what we focus on, and we can edit out the bits that we don't want, and all that all that stuff, you know. Strawberry fields forever. One season world. Uh-huh. Yeah. The yeah. one season world. Yeah. I'm curious if if you have you haven't thought too too much about the 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 workings of the school itself. It's interesting, too, because one of the other things that I uncovered some years back, maybe a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer, the school came under fire that several of its locations were accused of child abuse. I think there were some pretty harsh beatings Mm -hmm. of children and really harsh punishments Mm -hmm. of, of the young. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I, that does not surprise me at all. There was some, um, there was, um, when I was there, it wasn't too bad, but there was some, some rough, rough treatment, definitely. Some pretty rough treatment, which, which I didn't like and which I know my, my, my mother divorced my father because of his involvement basically in the school of philosophy. She did, she wanted out. Really? And yeah, she wanted out big time. And he was basically saying, look, you know, you, you're either in all the way or we're done kind of thing. You know, there's, there's no halfway in. It's like, she saw some of that at least anyway. And I saw a lot of it as a child. And they were, they, they were rough on the young boys. They were pretty damn hard on them. Sort of like boot camp style stuff a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, bordering on abuse. Look, okay. I, I didn't experience anything too, too bad, too extreme, but I could see the types of people who were, engaging in this type of behavior and the type the type of culture that was kind of yeah sublimating it and allowing it and so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear about uh people who who actually made allegations of of like significant serious abuse i I totally see that happening in this organization Mm -hmm. totally yeah definitely but you ended up breaking away from that in your teen years i I don't know, you had mentioned to me that you might want to get into some of these unusual experiences that you had even beginning as a teenager, these these experiences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure, you, sure. You, you might, one might call them a test almost. 
Yeah, I, weird, weird. Yeah, there was there was one that we talked about already, and that was I, I guess I was sixteen. So I left the school of philosophy when I was fifteen. I was living with my father at that time, and I, I, I the relationship with him was was not going well. And I, I moved out and moved in with my mother, and so simultaneously, as part of that move, I, I dropped out of the school of philosophy. I didn't. I yeah, I had a couple of friends in there, but I, I yeah, I didn't want to go. Didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Anyway, so at some point over the next, yeah, the next few years are pretty messy. I went off the rails big time as a teenager. And during that time, I guess, yeah, when I was 16 or so, I was, yeah, I was, I was in downtown Auckland in the middle of the day with a friend. We're at the big bus stop and I was just, we were just waiting to get on the bus. And this guy comes up to us and he says, Hey, hey guys, you want to earn some money? Said, well, uh, okay, it sounds interesting. And he says, yeah, well, there's a job that I need doing, and actually the job is to to, to murder somebody. And I was like, what? You know. But he, he kept talking, and once 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 he started talking, I realized now that he's focused he talking to me. He's focusing on me. He wasn't talking to my other friend very much. And uh, he said, yeah, this the story was that this is uh, up in the red light district. There had been some pimp who'd been mishandling mistreating some some prostitutes or, or something like that and that the the you know a head had been put out on him and uh, <laughs> would i would i like to to take the job and i'd, I'd get i'd get a gun to do it and i'd be given ten ten thousand dollars payment for it and at that time for some reason probably just being stupid and 16 i i kind of pursued it not because i ever thought i would really do it i guess but I kind of wanted to see if it was real, you know. You're, you're very curious and you're kind of like very adventurous and you want to explore and everything's kind of on the edge, or well, at least it was for me at that age, you know. No sense of danger or anything like that. Anyway, he he, he said, um, he gave me a phone number and said, look, if you want to talk more about this, you can come over and see me. And I did. I guess it must have been a day or two later or something like that. I think I, I called him on the phone and, I, I, yeah, I, he lived some somewhere along the bus route, kind of weird in itself, but yeah, when I got there, I remember he was talking, he was, it was just kind of blabbering on about some escort service or something like that, and this guy's a creep, he's a really creepy guy by the way, you know, mm-hmm. bad energy, really nasty vibes, slimy, 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 slimy kind of guy. And, I, and the memory is very, very vague apart from that because I do remember going in there and it just kind of all evaporated. And I can't remember who said what or how it ended or, or why or anything, really. I, I remember going in there because I was kind of curious. I don't remember confirming yes or no that I would do this or not, but I just remember it all just evaporated, like the kind of the offer just floated away or... or just the subject just died a natural death and somehow I, I left and that was it and I never saw that guy ever again and I don't think even I don't even thought I didn't really think about it much after that to be honest with you I don't know why but I didn't it just kind of it's kind of really un, unreal thing that just it happened and when it was over it was done and that was it but I um, I look back on it now actually and wonder if that had been some kind of a test to see if I was corruptible. I tend to think that I had probably raised a few red flags growing up by saying the wrong things and asking the wrong questions and being clearly very un- unhappy about going along with groups and stuff like that. 
I mean, we we know how this how 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 tightly the system is monitored and controlled, you know. And we've discussed this, Melissa, you and I, you know, in emails, some of the experiences you've had as well. But yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised at all if it was something like that. If they picked me at a very vulnerable point in my life to see it could I be corrupted. What what you know what would I do in, in a situation where I had personal gain on one hand and and morality on the other? You know? mm-hmm. Perhaps something like that. I I think for longtime listeners of Alan or for people who have thought about the way in which our reality is presented to us have given a lot of thought to the idea of how long we've been so carefully and completely controlled. If you think back to the examples of neighbors spying upon neighbors like the Stasi or the IBM uh, punch card system of tracking and monitoring people or what we know about postal services opening up mail and having the exact kind of stationery, the exact stamps, you know, all of the things that they could put together, the contents, and make it look as if it had never been opened. And also having, you know, people being approached. I mean, these stories aren't really very odd to me. One of the things that uh, I conveyed to you in an email was it happened just before I met Alan, but I was in communication with him. And I had an opportunity to go to another state, and there, it, I was mingling with some people that were quite successful, and the couple that they introduced us to had retired recently, say in the past three to five years, and I can't remember what their jobs were, but he particularly was a highly placed executive in a very big, like Fortune 500 company. And they retired way before retirement age, probably in their early 50s. Mm-hmm. And, it, and they had this beautiful house on the hill. And it seemed to me that all they did was go to different social groups and, you know, bike and hike and go to one party after another. They were social movers and shakers in a town that didn't attract these kind of people. In other words, they might have been the wealthiest people in this area. Mm-hmm. And then yep. their their peers would have been very limited. There might have been, say, a hundred people max in this city that they w- would have moved with them at that level. And I just observed the way they talked to me, the the curiosity that they had, the curiosity that they had about other people was, it. I, I can only say it was abnormal. And yep. I, I, yeah, I, I mentioned this to Alan. I said, I have a feeling that they are community spies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now I know that sound. <laughs> and Alan said, well, I, I, I don't doubt that for a minute. We, we talked about this at length, and he said, this is how the system works. He said, yeah. there are, literally are armies of people at all social class levels, and they, to, for lack of a better word, they infiltrate the social networks of wherever they've been placed. He said they will be put into retirement. They were chosen, they were groomed, possibly even when they were young. 
for mm-hmm. their ultimate role was not to be the senior vice president of a large corporation. Their ultimate role was to be the eyes and ears of a town of the hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. These things, um, these people definitely exist. I mean, I've, there is, there is something to do, especially with Freemasonry where it, there's, I'm not saying it's everybody within the lodge, but they, 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 the lodge will always have certain people who are tasked with that particular role, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, keeping an eye on things and reporting mm-hmm. back to, to headquarters, you know, on if anybody may be saying something they shouldn't be or is kind of maybe getting into some, getting into some, making some inquiries, should we say, that maybe, maybe they really just shouldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, uh, that, are, that are not considered in good taste and um, would not serve them, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. asking the wrong questions, etc. you know. Yeah, there's, my brother is a Freemason, and he's very much like that. Everything is, everything is tactical. Everything mm-hmm. is gathering, everything is gathering information, everything. Mm-hmm. Everything is a front, it's a, um, there's an agenda, everything's a front, it's all tactics, it's a strategy to, to either gain the the upper hand in the sort of in the the hierarchy or the social social uh, scene or whatever, but but mainly just um, to uh, yeah to to observe and report and take a lot of details and stuff like that. Yeah, very much part of that culture. Interesting. And we know that they have the the Eastern Star as well for the women specifically. So, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, when, when you start to understand how things work, then you know that you've met these kinds of people. And they don't have to say, no. oh, I'm Eastern Star or I'm a Freemason. But you understand, oh, that's what that was about. You know, this. It all clicks. It all clicks. You know, I remember my um, my brother got himself into trouble when he was young in his early 20s. Or I think he was 19 or something like that. And he, he ended up going to prison. And it wasn't for the crime that he had initially committed. It was for perjury and denying it. He dragged the court through a bunch of lies for about 18 months. And the judge, at the end of it, got fed up with him and said, right, you know, <laughs> I'm going to teach you a lesson, basically. Mm-hmm. He, he was in there for a few months in the general population. And um, he, he got out, though. He got out on home detention within a couple of months, which was, mm, I'm not going to say too easy, but it was kind of convenient and I, I know my stepmother was still practicing law at that time. I think she had a lot to do with it. But I realize now I've connected dots and I've spoken to him. I've spoken to other people. He, he, I'm pretty, I'm pretty well convinced he got out uh, on the proviso that he, he was going to join the lodge and he owed them his life and he owed them any favor they might ask in the future. And we do know that the Masons will recruit out of prison specifically for that reason because they can get people who have got no family, have got no tribe of their own. They can basically buy them off and initiate them into their own gang, because it's all, all it is, it's just a gang. Mm-hmm. And they will be more loyal than anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, So so people like my brother were, would have been were, were prime candidates for being in, initiated and invited into Freemasonry for that reason. So they're probably, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that, that that's he got out early. And, and, and um, the, the the price was that he joined the the lodge and and he, he you know they say jump and he says how high so yeah and I I think I mean some of these things that we talk about yes they are speculative 
But you also have to use the information that you have to put things together. You suspect that your grandfather was a Mason. You know yeah, exactly, yeah. that your father was involved in the school of philosophy that had a very yeah. unique approach to family life and uh, and control. And yeah. you, you just have to use your own powers of observation and connecting the dots. And, and yeah. I, I, I would say also that the, the school of philosophy, there was a Masonic kind of a culture in that as well. And I would basically... the this is something I didn't mention before. Business was a big part of it. All the guys who were involved there were upper middle class. And the ones that came in perhaps with a little bit less money, if they stayed long enough, they would probably end up doing pretty well for themselves. So that was a big part of it. Business, the, all, most of them are lawyers. Mm-hmm. Some of them property, property developers. There was a few tradesmen in there, but I mean, these people were tradesmen with, with money that tradesmen shouldn't have really <laughs> so uh, there's there's stuff going on there i don't know what it was but there's big business big business stuff going on then yeah um i i suspect a lot of the guys and they're probably masons as well i suspect it, yeah so one of the things that i noticed in the little bit of research that i did too was that may at least in some of the major areas where the school of philosophy is set up like london there's a large arts component to this. And this is what seems to keep the women busy. It's right, uh, yeah. art, art functions, creativity, creative, creative workshops, that kind of thing. And this keeps the women and children, particularly the young girls, focused on uh, theater, dance, uh, fine arts, painting, sculpture, that, and, to look at it on one level that now that for many, many years they did an art exhibition and I noticed that that went down a few years ago, maybe half a dozen years ago. And they said it was, you know, kind of under construction, the idea of it, but they, the schools are still involved in that. And so you see a, a beautiful delineation along the lines of male and female as to how they will function in the society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, that's definitely there, yeah, um, and some of that, of course, is, is valuable, I think, some of that is, we, I think you would agree as well, Melissa, perhaps, is this, and this is more akin to natural law, if you want to call it that, you know, because I know that we've discussed some of these concepts previously, but of course, it wasn't just that, you know, it was, it was, it was dogma, you know, and it was kind of forcing people into, to adopting certain behaviors, without necessarily then really wanting it or really understanding it, you know. Well, so. that's that's the appeal of even the, you know, of any New Age philosophy, but that is the appeal is that it must contain some fundamental natural truths. There are huge course, differences yeah. between men and women. And, and so if you have a, a system of thought and uh, organization that, caters to those natural differences the the truth of that is appealing yeah yeah and 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 personally i didn't find that particular truth appealing at that time but um i I suppose i probably do now that i'm a bit older but of course as well there was plenty of philosophical content and all that which was 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 great you know Mm -hmm. there's some some good stuff you know and really interesting stuff to to do with uh you know learning about oneself and all the rest of it and and studying Different ways of looking at things from the from the Vedas across to the the Hellenic Greeks and and beyond. But yeah, as you say, they 
it wouldn't it wouldn't sell unless it had some truth in it or something at least something valuable in it. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how are we going for time here? Do we want to cover a couple of other topics? I was just thinking about when I went to Glasgow and I lived there for a while. There were some experiences um, with the <laughs> the groups that I set up, you know, and, and as it that was when I was getting to listen to Alan. You know? I think we have time for that. It's an interesting little story. So basically, yeah, I had been I was living in the UK from about 2007 onwards, um, and I moved to, moved to Scotland in 2008, I think, for work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got a job there in Glasgow. And uh, it was around about that time that I was starting to, to, to get into questioning some things. And I was, you know, you'd see some stuff on the internet. The, the Zeitgeist movies were doing the rounds. Everybody was talking about those, even in the mainstream. And it was around about that time I was getting into looking at some of this stuff. And, um, yeah, it's, it sort of happened slowly, but it wasn't. You were speaking, who were you speaking to? Darren, I think it was. You were speaking to Darren just like recently. And he said that it was no big shock for him. None of it was a big shock, and it's the same for me. It was not. A, I never had any huge moment where it all, the whole narrative came crashing down on me, or that I was in shock or grief or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we got to a point. I got to a point, at least anyway, where I'd start, I joined uh, the We Are Change group in Glasgow, thinking that might be interesting, you know, to meet some people. It kind of was, and it kind of was, and it was very messy. There was a lot of a lot of yelling, and and it was more of a so it's like a more of a social thing, really. And I, but I did meet a guy there, my friend Scott. I met him through that group. We formed a, our own friendship, and he was really into Alan, you know. And he, he got me into Alan, and that's when things really, really changed for me. The, the, the waking up was really, really underway at that point. Listening to Alan's stuff uh, was just on another level. So as I was going through this, we were thinking, well, let's try and do something with this. Then, you know, let's 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 do maybe what Alan's talking about because he's saying, look. You can have a book club or something like that where you can have a have a coffee or a beer and you, you can sort of compare notes from a book. Or you can watch a film and then people can talk about the film afterwards and you can you can really use your brain. You know, we sort of we, we tried to put together something like that in Glasgow, naively, <laughs> but um, I, I created a, a forum and I was just yeah writing articles all the time and I did, was doing interviews with different people. Yeah, some people who were hot at the time. Brian Gerrish, I remember, spoke to him. He's quite an interesting character. And if you're Aaron Franz as well from the Age of Transitions, I sort of ended up developing a friendship with him too. And there was various other people as well that we spoke to. But um, eventually we got this group together. What do we call it? The Glasgow Truth Group, I think. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> cringe. We had a first meeting. And to cut a long story short, the, uh, we, were, we were basically infiltrated from the get-go by... by Police intelligence, they call it. They call it. Well, it's called special branch in the UK. That's what they're colloquially known as. It's yeah, it's the police police intelligence. So it's kind of like MI5 or the police's version of MI5 or something. But it's all your your, your national your national security and surveillance kind of networks. And uh, this guy was he came in on the first day and he told us I, I'm I'm working for special branch as a janitor. And of course nobody else got the joke. But he was telling us, you know, it was telling us right then and there um, what he was doing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who, who he was, and, and and more particularly what he and his, what he and his bosses thought of us. You know? <laughs> Obviously, we we got it, mm-hmm. but he felt so confident that he could say that, and that no one else was going to get it. That he said it, and no one else wow. got it. You know? Wow. Yeah. So I mean, that wasn't a good start. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, basically, he, he he was doing exactly what exactly what we expected him to do, which was to um to try and spin things off, to try and disrupt disrupt um any sort of practical uh, or productive conversations about the basics. Because you know, Alan was always emphasizing that you know you, you stick to the books from the big players, stick to the stuff you can prove. You talk about the basics using simple language, and you get conversation going with people. You know what I mean? And start mm-hmm. asking people what they think about this, and it's very, very pragmatic in his approach. And we, we thought, well, we really wanted to try that, but of course, this guy was there to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, it's um, immediate. I mean, so, that's yeah. one thing that Alan talked about is that if you, you can't have a little book club or a poetry society without immediate infiltration. And the one thing that yeah. we noticed about We Are Change, we heard this from people who were either involved in a branch of that somewhere or a little offshoot like yours, is typically the direction that it got spun off into from the get-go was sustainability, the greening, the environment. Everyone is pro-saving the earth when Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. initial idea was, you know, let's get the man that's holding us down and not telling us the truth about 9-11 and banking, Mm -hmm. you know, but no, immediately it's into sustainability. Well, the the zeitgeist thing was a big part of that, as I'm sure you're aware that they they, they came out and they did the first film, which was just totally nailing it. Um, Uh Uh-huh. On so many levels, really, really good. And then, of course, he comes in with his all of his fucking oh, sorry, <laughs> his, yeah, his, his agenda twenty one um, yeah. fantasies. You know, yeah. um, it was very predictable and boring. But um, yeah, so that, look, this, to get back to the story, that this this guy was was not trying to push any one thing. He was just trying to disrupt anything from really happening. So he would just come mm-hmm. in, and it was just you know. Have you seen this? In regard to 9-11, you had the Judy Wood thing with the, the directed energy weapons, and it was just garbage, you know what I mean? Just just stuff that's to do nothing but confuse people. And then well, I think it was the UFOs. It was anything. You'd come up with anything. Anything that was basically worthless and speculative and really, really probably not worth talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. That was his thing, yeah. Anyway, the group didn't really last very long because of that. We tried doing a few sort of private type meets where we just sort of invited a few select people and we did some screenings of Alan Watts interviews, but uh, they just they didn't really go down very well. People people saw it. I think more that they wanted it more as a social club. They 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 wanted fun. I guess they wanted good energy, positive vibes. I recall the the day the early days when you and Scott were doing that, and I I believe that one of the two of you reported back. You wanted to have some serious discussion, like assign a book, one of the dust yeah. books, and then everyone would come back and talk about that and try to learn. And you said that there was no interest in serious study. None. Zero. Yeah. Zero. We basically, I think we we spoke to maybe one or two other people the whole time that group was running who were even aware of who Alan Watt was. Mm-hmm. I think we spoke to one other guy who had maybe maybe listened to a few podcasts or blurbs or maybe seen a, an interview or something, but it yeah it it hadn't really hadn't really sunk in or made much of an impact. And you know when we talked about. This, this whole idea of like yeah book book club or or study material or let's let's get together and use our brains for a bit um, yeah I, there was nobody basically 
nobody at all. So, yeah. So that was that. There were other people that we sort of had more short-term friendships with and and discussions with over those years, you know, sort of off and on, and it was okay, you know, but nothing happened. Nothing happened with the group. We sort of stopped it, and the the, the things definitely picked up a little bit, though, when I... I changed, I, I started working a new job. I was working for the British Medical Association and my first day of work I had another one of these guys show up basically. And um, this is probably going to sound totally crazy to people um, who have not had this experience or, yeah. I was I was literally watched at a watcher at my workplace who started on the same day as me and was clearly from the same organization. Mm-hmm. So you know, from the poli- from the police, or it was being sent by the local Masonic lodge or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he let me know that, and, and coded language in a way he knew everything about me on the first day before we'd even spoken. He was he was telling me, I I know who you are, and I'm letting you know that I'm here, keeping an eye on you. Basically, he tried to do it in a friendly way, you know, like we can have a beer and all this kind of stuff. But of course. <laughs> That was never going to happen. I, I rejected all of his, his invitations um, in that regard. I was, I was, yeah, I was receiving some. I got threatening phone calls outside of work during that time as well. well I realise now that it was because of the company that I was working for. That was the British Medical Association. And had I still been in that role in 2020, had I stayed on an extra five years, I would have been front and centre for the whole COVID thing. And that's what they were concerned about. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I was starting to interrupt because I wanted to make sure you got that point across because you had mentioned that to me, and I'm I'm quite certain. You see, it doesn't really matter if these things sound crazy or not. What is, is, and what you might notice, what you have noticed, is that if you exhibit signs of independent thinking or going swimming upstream, anything that is unusual to the groups that want you going along as everyone else does, you are going to be followed, watched, attempts will be made to control you, and the the organization that you were involved in then, you would have had an absolute perfect view of what happened and what needed to happen during the COVID operation. Absolutely. Yeah, one thing that you said to me, you can talk a little bit more about that, but you said that it appeared to you that what was happening at that time was an, an, the active weeding out of anyone who couldn't get on to consensus in the direction they wanted to take the British Health Services. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that was happening. I knew about this already because I had been in contact with Brian Gerrish and um, he was very, very well known in the UK for doing work on with uh, studying, studying rather, and and sort of exposing common purpose, mm-hmm. this kind of um, fifth column infiltration group, you know, um, that is basically like a Trotskyist type organisation. It's they infiltrate and disrupt, and yeah, they're just one of the many groups anyway. We don't need to go into too detail. One of the many groups that's sent in there to to really sort of start twisting things from the inside. And um, also, a, a big thing with common purpose is that they uh, they do active, what we're talking about on a kind of surreptitious level, they are actively recruiting young minds mm-hmm. and mentoring them, shaping them, vetting them to participate oh, yeah. in civil service, bureaucracy, you, you know, the military. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like your, like your global uh, young global leaders at the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. If people know what that is about, then com- mm-hmm. Common Purpose was basically just that on a small scale within the UK. Mm-hmm. But um, they they'd gotten everywhere by about 2010. They were everywhere. Yeah, the the the, the everybody in government was a member and was was going along with it. So. Um, yeah, so that was a big part of it, and I saw a lot of that culture change coming through in the British Medical Association when I was there, and I had access to a lot of um, information. I had access to a couple of different servers off-site, all to do with training manuals, policy, political discussions to do with the, the future of the NHS, uh, website content, you name it, you know. I, I It wasn't like... Something, nothing exciting like top secret, but it was just all the all the culture change stuff, all the the, the internal policy stuff that was actually pretty radical when you mm-hmm. when you looked at it, you know. Um, and I, I I had pretty good overview of a lot of that stuff, and I could see it being implemented. And to answer your, your point that you made before, yes, what I saw in my time there was, and what I witnessed was, they were definitely weeding out the more judicious and moral. Uh, types from, from within the whole system. They were getting rid of people with who had a conscience. And finding out who was who and the people who were who were standing by their guns were being yeah, they were being attacked, they were being having all kinds of dirty games played played on them. They'd have people close you know, that they'd, they'd have their colleagues close ranks on them, they'd have the the big oversight bodies and all these judicial councils coming down on them for nothing. It was totally corrupt. Totally, totally corrupt. And you saw, of course, as all this was going on as well, as they were getting rid of, quote-unquote, the good people, basically, people that might have stood their ground, you know, in the COVID thing, they were appointing the most mediocre personalities imaginable to all of these top positions. And so beyond that, they were even creating, they were sort of taking the whole management structure making it even more complicated, putting more levels in it so that they could staff it with completely unnecessary, incompetent bureaucrats and civil servants, you know what I mean? And and it was being, you you really see, like, when I look look back at it now, and it's like they were were breaking it. It They were were doing everything everything they could to make sure that this thing was going to basically fall apart. It was gonna, it was gonna crumble, at least in terms of doing the job that it was ostensibly set out to do. You know, mm-hmm. you're gonna have them going along with this, all the people going along with this whole ridiculous pantomime with the the masks and the the, the vaccine mandates and all that stuff. And at the same time, any good functionality within that system, any 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 of the ways that it should normally function, were were, were totally being sabotaged. Uh, and this was this was long term sustained. Subversion. Yeah, just and I, one, saw, I saw that from where I was. Yeah. One example of what you're talking about, the Liverpool Care Pathway, oh, yeah, w- yeah. which was exposed for the eugenics element that it was, and I, I think supposedly exposed and put down in about 2012, I was just following up on that, listening to Alan discussing this, and I thought, well, what's going on with it now? Well, just last month, there was an expose on the fact that though it was put down nominally and exposed and ended, that the practices contained with that, which is basically selecting who should go on end-of-life care. Euthanasia, yeah. Euthanasia, that that is still happening 
directly in the lines of the Liverpool Care Pathway. So it's yeah, that's yeah, that's one example of the types of culture changes that we saw coming in, and of the types of things that the British uh, establishment were very very concerned about people knowing about and being able to criticise. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was things like that were happening right up and down the board, right across the board. For that reason, I believe people like me who could see it were were being yeah sort of watched and intimidated a bit. You know, just um, yeah. An interesting thing to to get out there is that when you decided that you no longer wanted to do this work and you gave notice, you said that your watcher disappeared or basically he left within weeks of your leaving. He disappeared overnight. When I once I gave my notice, he gave it, he get, he disappeared. He was gone before I was. Wow. Yeah. Off to watch someone else. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, you know what? Some, you know what? Really funny is hmm. the um, the guy who was doing Imperial College London computer modeler who came up with all of these uh, computer models for the first series of lockdowns, and they weren't just used in in England and the UK; they were used in America as well. This, these these computer models to to justify why everything had to be locked down. Was this that guy was Ferguson? Neil Ferguson. Yeah, his name. Uh-huh. that's the name of the guy. Who came to watch me at work? What? Yeah, I'm not saying it's the same guy. I'm saying it's the same name. Even. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Just a funny little coincidence. Just a, just, that's a funny little coincidence. I thought, you know. Yeah. yeah. That was that was pretty pretty out there that uh, that would happen. But I mean, look, these um, fairly standard Scottish names, so. Whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, but it Neil, was funny. <laughs> the the modeler Neil Ferguson, what a piece of work there! He's telling everyone that they have to be locked down, and he's traveling two hundred kilometers to visit his mistress. Yeah, yeah, of course, that, and we saw that we saw that in every country yeah. across the world, and the media were damn sure to make sure that the public were given an example of that in every yeah. country, just mm-hmm. to let them know how Rub much it they resented them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, anyway, this, yeah, that was that was that. Yeah. I, we've been going at it for a little while here, and uh, I think we might have to wrap it up, and then I'm sure we'll have to talk again for a real mm. history because you have a lot more stories to share. I do. I've got uh, those are some of the good ones, but I've got some other ones. Yep. And, and um, it's it's always always fun to have a chat to share some of the stuff. I appreciate what you're doing. I've really enjoyed some of the chats you've, you've put up. Yeah. Oh, good. Really, I've really enjoyed some of the people you've spoken to, and I, and I hope that there's people out there who've, who've enjoyed this conversation as well. I'm sure that there will be. So I thank you for sharing your time, especially as you're on this uphill recovery, and I, I hope it goes well for you and that you recover beautifully. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I think, and the listeners, thank you for listening. And, you know, Adam and I hope that you have gotten some insights and some interest here. And I will be back next week. Thank you very much. Well, I've got something that the world